Get your day started with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern. Get the latest on the first round of the NBA playoffs and what's next for Aaron Rodgers, as well as everything else you need to know to start your day. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio, ESPN2, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, everybody. It's a special ESPNW Summit-themed podcast today. I've got two incredible conversations I wanted you to hear from last week's ESPNW NYC Virtual Summit. Major life lessons and philosophies, incredible insight into the creative process and the importance of representation in media. Good stuff in here. You guys are going to love this. That's what she said. The first of today's interviews is with Melissa Stockwell, Paralympic medalist, veteran, Purple Heart recipient, triathlete, and Team Toyota athlete. Uh, I interviewed her years ago for ESPNW. It was so great to catch back up with her and talk about where she's come since uh, eight or nine years ago and what she's working towards now with the Paralympics ahead. Uh, Melissa lost her leg to a roadside bomb in Iraq. She was actually the first female American soldier to lose a limb in the Iraq war. And we talked about how she celebrates Little Leg's birthday or her alive day and chooses to celebrate what she has instead of what she lost. Um, And that includes drinking out of her prosthetic leg and uses it for dance tricks. Um, her perspective is, is is super necessary, especially now as we're all sort of reemerging to a slightly more normal life post-COVID and um, the big lessons that she's learned from the challenges she's faced and what she can tell us about the choices we make every single day uh, is incredible and worth listening to. After that, you're going to hear from Adele Lim, the co-writer of Riot and the Last Dragon and the writer of Crazy Rich Asians, and Osnat Schurer, who's the producer of Riot and the Last Dragon and Moana. They got together to talk to me about creating this latest massive Disney feature film and how there was so much powerful stuff in this movie that in a lot of ways they couldn't plan for, including the enemy being this sort of virus-like attack called the Droon well before COVID came around, um, having a Southeast Asian protagonist as we're experiencing awful incidents of racism against the AAPI community, um, the power of representation, what it was like making this movie from 400 different homes during COVID, the female bond and special relationship, potentially even love connection uh, between Raya and the enemy princess Namari, and just the themes at the heart of the film and how they are really ringing true right now. Um, also, just the freedom and struggles of being allowed to create a whole new land of fantastic characters and beings that only has to be tethered to reality so much. A really fascinating conversation. I think you guys are going to love that too. But let's start with Melissa Stockwell, who, by the way, uh, this past Saturday at the age of 41, earned her first world triathlon pair series victory since 2015 with a win in Japan and her time was more than eight minutes better than the runner-up such a badass uh, you guys are gonna love this combo that's what she said I am so happy to have the chance to talk again with Melissa Stockwell a Paralympic medalist veteran Purple Heart recipient and a team Toyota athlete Melissa it's been a while we got a lot to get to 
It's been, what, eight years? Great, great to talk to you again, though. Great to see you. Um, how was 2021? I'm not sure, but here we are. Yeah, I know. I was looking back at the interview I did with you for ESPNW in 2013, and I was like, how has it been eight years? And also, by the I way, know. the fact that you're still competing at the highest level when I continued to disintegrate uh, in, in front of my own eyes. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I just before we even get started, I have to tell you, it's funny how many times your name has come up since that interview, because I tore my Achilles and I have two bulging discs in my back and I'm in PT all the time and I literally will ask my physical therapist how come this incredible woman can do an Ironman and she lost a leg and I'm not allowed to jog it's like it's like I mean that's kind of a valid question yeah yeah Yeah. right yeah he's like well it's easier to figure out the problem when when we know what the problem is versus you you're about that's that's true Um, that's very true yeah yeah like for the people who haven't read stuff about you or seen you before, I would love for you to just start out real quickly with taking me back to young Melissa who dreamed of being in the Olympics and dreamed of being in the army from a young age. Yes, young Melissa. Um, I was a big gymnast when I was younger. I think, you know, any young, a, a lot of us are athletes when we're younger. And for me, gymnastics was what I did. It was my passion. I dreamt of being an Olympic gymnast. I would you know, stand on the floor mat before every gymnastics meet and what, imagine myself getting that perfect 10 in the American flag as the national anthem played. And obviously that, that 10 never happened. But what did happen was developing a strong passion for, for the flag. And, um, you know, the red, the white, and the blue, learning at a young age how lucky we were to live in the country that, um, that we live in. So kind of, you know, making this, having this dream to want to be in the army. When I got a little bit older, I saw military personnel on TV or in the community. They had a uniform on, they had a flag patch on their shoulder. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to wear that uniform. I want to have that flag patch on my shoulder and ended up making it a reality many years later. It's funny because you wouldn't necessarily associate the two, but there is a rigidity, a strictness, a discipline to gymnastics and a performance that is, you know, in some ways, a lot of what you'll see from the military when it's not active duty and battle, right? It's the, it's the, it's the incredible sort of representation of patriotism. So I see the connection. So you end up in the Army, and in 20, uh, 2004, actually, um, your life completely changed. A roadside bomb in Iraq took your leg. You became the first female uh, soldier in the Iraq war to lose a limb. And I remember talking to you back in the day about your positivity at Walter Reed and how you managed to, despite a year-long recovery in the hospital, look around and find gratitude in your position. And I wonder if that was a natural habit for you growing up or if it was something you found within yourself after the after the incident. You know, I feel like I've always been an uh, like an optimistic, glass-half-full person, probably annoyingly optimistic for a lot of people. So, but when I lost my leg, so I met Walter Reed Army Medical Center. I'm 24 years old. My leg is gone in just, I mean, it's gone in in an instant. And I'm left wondering what my life will be like. But I get to Walter Reed Army Medical Center and there are, I'm surrounded by dozens of other soldiers who have gone through similar yet different circumstances. But we've, we've all been left with this, you know, these circumstances that we never expected. So if I ever had a bad moment, if I ever had a, excuse me, if I ever had a bad, you know, moment or a bad day, all I had to do was look around and I saw soldiers who were missing both of their legs. I saw soldiers missing, you know, an arm and a leg. I saw soldiers who were missing their eyesight. And I looked at myself and I thought, man, am I lucky? I mean, all I lost was, was one leg, not to mention I still had my life because too many 
have given and continue to give that ultimate sacrifice. So I, I had nothing to complain about. I mean, I think in life perspective is, is everything. I think, you know, we have what we consider bad days, but there's people out there that would love to have our bad days. So looking around and just realizing how lucky I was. It's such a meaningful perspective and it can change how you approach a current situation and the future and how you're going to handle it. Um, one of Julie Foudy's friends, Amy Liss, was a part of the ESPNW Chicago Summit years ago and she said she has an attitude of gratitude. And I always try to remember it. It's easy to, it rolls right off the tongue, attitude of gratitude and what that can do for you. Um, what were your expectations of life post-prosthetic before and then after and how did they meet up to the reality? So I had never really, I never really knew anyone with a prosthetic, um, you know, before I had my own, I didn't even know that there was this whole like field of prosthetics where you could actually, I mean, you, people, that was what people did for a living is they made artificial limbs and legs and arms. And I mean, I had no idea that that existed. So I think I didn't really know like what I was getting myself. I mean, I had no choice, but what I was really getting into and I saw, you know, I think the natural thing to do, you know, back then and even now is you know, something happens. And the first thing you do is you go to the computer and you Google, okay, I Googled, you know, female amputees and to see who became, who came before me. And I saw these incredible women that were up and they were walking and they were active and they were athletes. And it gave me this hope that I could do that as well, but it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you have these baby steps. So the first step was to get up out of my hospital bed. The second, you know, second goal was to walk with a prosthetic leg. The third goal was to become independent again. And then it kind of, you know, went on from there with, okay, I can walk, I can be independent. Well, why don't we not think about, can I still be an athlete and what can I still do? And luckily for me at Walter Reed, there were these organizations whose job was to get us out of our hospital room and get us out doing things that we never thought we'd do with both legs, much less with one. So took all the opportunities as they presented themselves and, you know, found myself skiing down a ski slope with one leg, learning how to ride a bike, getting in a pool and realizing that I could still be an athlete again. So what my expectations may have been quickly changed into doesn't matter if I only have one leg, I can still get out there and do the things that I want to do. It's funny how you mentioned the idea of doing things you hadn't thought about when you were fully able-bodied because there's this incredible <laughs> professor of happiness at Yale, Lori Santos, and, and one of the sessions that she teaches is about how our expectations are almost always wrong. We think we're going to be increasingly happier when we're skinnier or in love or win the lottery, and oftentimes those projections aren't right. That doesn't fix our problems. And the reverse is true for tragedies, incurable illnesses, loss of limb, you know, things like that, that people say after the fact, I wouldn't change it. My life is so much fuller now because of the decisions I've made post accident or post illness. And it's really incredible how often people I talk to actually do truly feel that way about how their lives opened up because of what they decided to take on um, when it became more limited somehow. It, it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, and that brings me to a live day and the birthday for your little leg. Um, I love that you remind yourself on an annual basis of how lucky you are to be here and how grateful you are. Can you tell us about the celebration? What does it look like? Yeah, so, so I lost my leg on April 13, 2004, over in Iraq. And if you've, if you've ever met wounded soldiers, a lot of wounded soldiers have what's called their alive days. So basically... Every year on the day that they lost, whatever they've lost, they, they celebrate it. Instead of mourning what you've lost, you actually celebrate what you still have. So it's this genius idea because I don't think we take enough time in our day-to-day -day life to ever 
think about how lucky we are to have the things that we have. Instead, we think about, you know, the bad things that happen or what we don't have or what we want. But we are so lucky to live the life that, that we live. So I decided to take it um, one step further. I named what's left of my leg a little leg because it's a little leg and decided that every year on April 13th, we're going to celebrate little leg's birthday. So this year, um, little leg turns 17, which is crazy on um, April 13th, but it's become this event where in non-COVID times, it is family and friends fly in. It's a celebration of life, not just little leg's life or my life, but I mean, everybody's life. There's a cake, there's party favors, there's dancing. We may or may not drink out of my leg, but that's only for those of us find out. But there's, um, you know, there's slogans every year and it's really just become this, it's become a bigger day than my own birthday, Little Leg's birthday, because I think it's just the meaning behind it. You know, I, I almost lost my life. I didn't, I lost a leg, but who cares? I've been, been able to, you know, accept the loss, move on and do these incredible things that I'm just really proud of. So celebrating that and just every, the life of, of everyone, really. I love that the prosthetic has turned into the Stanley Cup. What are we drinking out of it? Is it beer? Yeah. Is it champagne? Is it a, is it everything yeah. depending on the year? Typically like a cocktail mix. Like this year it was a margarita. It was virtual. <laughs> this year and last year were mainly virtual, but there was some margarita in there this year, yes. Love it, love it. You know, I actually saw you on the street here in Chicago um, a couple years ago and I knew immediately it was you because your prosthetic stands out and you chose to have it stand out and be wrapped in the American flag despite maybe people asking more questions about it or noticing instead of having it a appear to be um, more natural looking and blend in. Uh, and I imagine based on your face right now that you, you are happy with that decision every day. Oh, I love it. Um, yes, I can actually spin it around. Do you want to see it? I can spin it. Yeah. So you can you can kind of see it right here. There it is. <laughs> I can spin my leg oh, cool. around. Oh, typically shown <laughs> off on Little Leg's birthday and some dance moves. But yes. Um, <laughs> so you can choose really what the what the pattern is on the on the leg. I'm very proud of how I lost my leg. Um, so I show it off with red, white, and blue. And and you know, a lot of times people look, but it's I, I'm proud of it. And you know, kids think yeah. it's a cool robot-looking leg. And yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. So let's talk about the Paralympics coming up. How much did it affect your training for them to say, "Psych, 2021, not 2020"? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think it affected us all a little bit. Uh, it was the right call. I think any athlete will agree that health comes first, safety comes first. So postponing the games a year was, uh, I think, the, the right decision. I think for some athletes, it was no big deal. Like, it's like, a you know, another year, like, okay. But I am 41, uh, a proud 41-year-old, but I have two young kids. My husband and I just started a new prosthetic company here in Colorado Springs. And we had this timeline where of August 2020, I was going to I was gonna, you know, I wasn't gonna be training as much. I wasn't gonna be traveling for racing. I was gonna be involved in the business and I wasn't, it, so we kind of had this timeline. So, and plus I'm 41, so I needed to make sure my body could handle another year. So, but it was a very fleeting thought of, can I still do this? Um, and decided that absolutely, you wanna see a dream through to completion. And the training, uh, you know, it definitely changed a little bit. I had many months of, you know, the intensity was kind of brought down a little bit. I was able to, be at home more than I ever have been, which I, I loved. I was able to get out there and run while my son rode his bike next to me and just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of been trying to find the little things and the small enjoyments of, of, of life. And it's actually, 
it, it paid off. I mean, I'm faster now than I was a year ago. So, you know, I think, you know, I hopefully we're on the other side of COVID. I'm going to, you know, hold true to that statement that hopefully we are and look back and just think about, you know, hopefully how much stronger this past year has made all of us really. It's been a number of years since you were training for a Paralympics plus the two kids. So how different is it training now, whether that's because of age or because of, you know, now you're scheduling in between kids stuff that you have to take care of? Oh, it is a juggle. Um, you know, my kids are three and six and juggling that with, you know, this this elite athlete lifestyle and, you know, a new business that we have and kind of everything else that goes on between it. I couldn't do it on my own. I have an incredible husband. You know, my dreams are his dreams and he does everything he needs to do to try to help me succeed. And it's not, and it's not me succeeding. It's all of us succeeding together. It's my family, my husband. I mean, I'm so lucky to have sponsors like Toyota that believe in the dreams of Olympians and Paralympians and want to help us get to that next level and to succeed and, you know, be there and be on that podium. So I couldn't do it on my own. I'm very lucky to have the support that I do. And I mean, how lucky did I get to wake up every day and go do what I love? Yeah. You know, another Toyota team athlete, Alana Nichols, uh, wrote a kind of moving post about having her son and how it kind of changed her perspective for a stretch, at least on her disability. Did having kids bring up any new emotions for you about about your leg um, or that gratitude you'd always felt? Is it ever more challenging because of that? You know, I think being a parent who's an amputee, I mean, it definitely has some challenges, uh, especially when they're younger and you're trying to carry them everywhere. But now that they're a little bit older, I mean, three and six, I, I love it. You know, I love being a mom that looks a little bit different. I love being a mom that still has these big dreams and showing my kids, I mean, literally firsthand, and it doesn't matter if you look a little bit different. It doesn't matter if you have a disability. You can still get out there and do whatever it is that you want to do. And when they see other, you know, people in the community, whether they're missing an arm or a leg or they're in a wheelchair or they you know, they have a cane because they're blind to them. It's just like, a, oh, there's there's someone else that that looks like mommy or it, they don't really think twice about it, which I love. So I love that part of it. Um, I don't to me to them. I'm just mommy. I'm not I'm not the girl that's missing a leg who's, you know, trying to go to the Paralympics. I'm just I'm just mom. And, and I love that. I love that. You know, when I come home from a good workout or a bad workout, they're there for me. I mean, I had to put on my mom hat and walk in that door and regardless of what has happened to me, you know, earlier that day. So it's kind of given me that different perspective that, you know, there's, there's more to life than athletics. And I love that they're, they show me that every day and they, they just see that, you know, we're all a little bit different, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. You were super busy during the pandemic. Besides having to care for your kids, uh, you released a book, which is incredible. The Power of Choice, My Journey from Wounded Warrior to World Champion. You're, you did a Modelo ad, which people may recognize seeing you in. You're a Team Toyota athlete. In fact, you were helping others in your community with your Toyota. So tell me about how you filled your time during the pandemic. Sounds like you were quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we all, when the pandemic hit, I think a lot of us, you know, we woke up every morning, and we wanted, we wanted to do something. I think I felt guilty just, you know, sitting in my house and, you know, being, I had this, you know, an amazing family. I have, can put food on the table. I have a roof over my head. And there were people that were just really struggling. So I think a lot of us woke up and just wanted to, you know, what could we do to give back? 
So, um, you know, along with keeping up the training, just wanted to kind of give back to the community and started this program called Snacks for Superheroes, where I raised some money just through the community. And every week I would go to Costco, load up my Toyota 4Runner with um, um, as packed with snacks, um, you know, <laughs> granola bars and whatever it may be. And I would deliver them to a connection I had at the hospital who would then deliver them to um, the, the healthcare workers who were really on the front lines of COVID. So, I mean, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't this enormous, you know, feat. It was, we raised, I think I did it for about 12 weeks. I'm, you know, a full trunk in my forerunner of snacks that I delivered. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't millions of dollars of snacks. It was thousands of dollars, but it, it, it made me feel like I was doing something. My son would yeah. do it with me. He made signs that said, thank you to the healthcare workers. Um, yeah. It just, it really just helped us feel like we were just getting back a little bit. That's awesome. And you're still doing Dare to Try, right? As well? Yes, yep. So it's a Dare to Try. It's a nonprofit um, based out of Chicago that two friends and I have formed back in 2011. We get athletes with physical disabilities into the sport of triathlon. So taking away all the barriers um, that someone may have, the, the expensive adaptive equipment, coaching, training, um, you know, transportation to a race, and showing them how much ability is in their disability and just seeing that confidence and self-worth when they cross the finish line and they become triathletes and it truly just changes lives. So definitely one of my proudest accomplishments. Um, so thankful that Toyota has kind of jumped on board as a supporter of Dare to Try as well and just believes in the cause and believes in just, you know, showing it doesn't matter if what, what a disability is, you can still get out there and, and be a triathlete and, and be active. I love that because you figured that out for yourself, but now you're empowering all sorts of others to, to take away those limitations they might imagine that they have. You know, you wrote the book, you do a lot of speaking engagements, which means you spend a lot of time sort of crystallizing the messages that you've learned, the, the things you want to pass on to others. What are one or two of the biggest things when you go out to do a speaking engagement or in your book that you wanted to make sure that you imparted to other people? I think one of the biggest ones is that the power of choice. I mean, that that's that's the title of the book. But and you know, we all have, you know, there's obstacles in life that that come our way. Some of us have never experienced any major obstacle, and this this pandemic is a great example of something that we never expected would come our way. And here it is, and we are living in the midst of this obstacle that that we never expected. And the power of of choice is that. You have every day when you wake up, regardless of what has come your way, we have the power to choose how we live our days. Mm -hmm. So after I lost my leg, I could have chosen to say, oh, woe is me, I lost my leg and you know, not really accepted it. But instead I chose to say, all I lost is one leg, now let's get back to living. And that simple choice has led me down the path of a life greater than I ever could have imagined. So I think, you know, every day when we wake up, we have a choice. We have a choice to look at the glass half full. We have a choice to think about things that we are thankful for. And a lot of times those little things we we miss and we, or we forget about. But, I mean, we get to wake up in a warm bed. We get to eat our breakfast at, 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 at a table with a roof over. I mean, there's those little things that we kind of forget about. But just to, you know, choose to make the most of it, choose to live the days you know, whatever, whatever makes you happy, find a way to make yourself happy and to live the life that you want to live. 
Yeah. And some of the happiest people I know, it's all about gratitude. It's all about perspective and how you choose to see what's come to you and what you can choose to do with it. So I love that message. I have to let you go, but what's the goal in the Paralympics? What are we putting out there? What's the big thing that we're looking forward to so we can keep track and watch along with you? The goal, so we're still qualifying. Qualifying starts um, actually just, in, in, we're still qualifying. So the goal is to be in Tokyo, to put on make the it, right? uniform, <laughs> yeah. make it, to be on the podium. I think anyone that goes to the games wants to be on top of that podium, to see that American flag go up, hear our national right. anthem. Think about everyone that got me there, my family, my friends, being on Team Toyota, just kind of being there as a team and just celebrating it all. Love it. Well, we can't wait to watch. Good luck. And thanks so much for being here. I love catching up with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, I'd like a word. So no guest words this week, but I've got one for you. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is... This week's words were actually inspired by a headline from last year that was just shared into one of my social media feeds this week, and it read... Only a plonker would call time on sozzled bonking. Yeah, there's only nine words there, and three of them were total unknowns to me. So here we go. Turns out sozzled is a lot like last week's word, crapulent. It means very drunk. Bonking, technically a term for hitting the wall in an endurance sport, that fatigue or nausea or dizzying when your um, liver is depleted of glycogen. But also, and more importantly here, bonking is slang for having sex, which then brings us to plonker which official dictionaries define as slang for a silly or stupid person, but other sites also say is slang for penis. And if you say, I'm just pulling your plonker, you're basically saying, I'm just pulling your leg. Neither of which really makes sense when you think about it. And even etymologists can't find the root of the phrase pulling your leg and why that means just, you know, having a laugh with you. Either way, back to the sentence. It turns out another newspaper writer in the UK had pointed out that many slang words were going extinct as young people no longer used or understood them, and his headline was, No More Sozzled Bonking. Hence, our hero columnist Rose Wilde's response, and a correct one, I would say, I mean, literally, only a tool would call for the end of drunk sex, but also in terms of preserving language. Even the young folks cannot deny the magic of... Only a plonker would call time on sozzled bonking. That's what she said. Now to the second Summit interview of this week's pod with Raya and the Last Dragon co-author Adele Lim and executive producer Osnot Schurer. Adele Osnot, thank you so much for joining me today. This movie is gorgeous. It made me cry. It made me laugh. It made me so happy. I would literally die for Tuk Tuk. I want you to know that. Um, I'm obsessed. Uh, just obsessed. Um, so I don't want to give away any spoilers, but for those who don't know, um, Ryan the Last Dragon is set in this fantasy world of Kumandra, and humans and dragons used to live in harmony. Uh, there was disruption that threatened the land. The dragons sacrificed themselves to save humanity, but then they became divided. And now one lone warrior, Raya, is set to reunite the entire land together as one um, by tracking down the legendary last dragon to help save everything. Um, 
It's gorgeous. It's 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 beautiful. And, and Osnat, I, I I would love for you to take us to the beginning because creating a brand new Disney feature film to go along with the likes of everything we've grown up with and loved is a lot of pressure. Where does it begin? What's the germ? It begins with people. You know, it, 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 the beginning of our films, um, we're, we're all about working with incredible filmmakers. And we start by thinking about what is it we want to talk about? What's important to us? And I think with Raya and the Last Dragon, um, we thought a lot about looking around us and looking at the divisiveness that, that, we, that we all have amongst ourselves in the world and, and in this country and um, how much we would like to talk about what it takes to work together for the greater good. That's the most important message we felt. And starting there and at the same time, we also had this wonderful idea about these five lands around the Dragon River. The dragon itself was the Asian dragon, who's a dragon is about uh, fertility and life and harmony and primarily water. And especially as we focused in the Southeast Asian dragon, the Naga is all about water and, and life. And so read these and some of the characters, but the heart of the idea is us sitting together in a room and saying, what's important? Because mm -hmm. we take that responsibility seriously. And then we go off on, on crazy plays of the imagination for years and years until we hone it. Yeah, I wanted to start there because that is so important is what's at the root of everything you create because there's so much freedom once you start creating that what's tying you down to the realities of what you want to represent in the film. And by the way, if people want to ask any questions of Adele or Osnot, you can tweet us using the hashtag ESPNW Summit and maybe we can get to one or two of those. Um, you know, you were born in Israel, Osnot, and you traveled all over the world for life and for work. And I wonder, you know, working with Pixar and your other jobs and, and exploring all these other cultures, if that influenced your process and how you view representation in the film you're helping helm? I think so. I thought a lot about this. I grew up um, spending quite a few years in each place. It was my family was moving around as, as um, airline people. And I spent time in Africa. I spent time all over the world. And what it created for me was uh, um, a desire to always find the shared humanity among cultures, which I think is so exciting and so interesting. And I, I also believe as a storyteller that the more specific you are, the more universal a story you can tell. And so um, bring all that together and then having the opportunity to work on Moana and to become so immersed in these amazing cultures and even more so having, to, having a chance to spend time with, break bread with and, and learn from experts from yeah. the region. That's what sort of creates my philosophy, which is um, we work together. To, to create the film and what we end up with if we if we're disciplined enough is a story that 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 um, deserves to be in the Disney animation <laughs> lineage it's it's a high bar so Adele understanding that there's so much focus on the storytelling in Disney films and representation and what are, what are the princesses stories and and what are the challenges um, how much do you get when you arrive in this process? When you come to be the co-writer of this film, how much do they give you and how much is just do your thing wide open to interpretation? You know, it's it's a lot of both. You come in and you're working with the most talented um, artists in the world, creating these amazing, rich visuals and bringing them to life. And uh, selfishly for me, you know, growing up in Southeast Asia, my very first movie was Disney's Snow White mm -hmm. and the opportunity to be able to, um, you know, work with Disney and actually use the region where I grew up, Southeast Asia, to be part and inspiration of this amazing Disney fantasy movie was 
you know, it's a dream come true. And so the opportunity to have a heroine, a Disney heroine, who's who looks like, you know, my daughter, who looks like the women I grew up with, um, it just gives an opportunity to show, you know, all these um, young girls around the world that it doesn't matter where you um, where you're from, what your face looks like, you know, your face and your story gets to be celebrated. I love that. And I, I love that you get to root it in something that feels very real world, but then create around her lands that are very unique and special and creatures. Uh, the aforementioned Tuk Tuk, who somehow reminds me of my pit bull, even though um, definitely not a dog, but I'm, that's basically the relationship that I have with Tuk Tuk. Um, like I said, I would die for him. Um, I want to hear about creating because there's something about the creative process that feels easier when there's no reality and no rules. But I actually think it's much more difficult because sometimes in the creative process, if someone says, okay, everything has to be purple, then it sort of limits you. But you can make anything. It can look like anything. How does that go, especially in a co-writing process where then you can argue with someone else and, and, and try to figure out who wins? Um, you know, that's exactly right. And the whole idea of not having parameters is, is, is more so in an animated setting because, you know, the, the only limits are your imagination. We're not held down by, you know, physical boundaries or physics even. And so I think a big guiding principle for all of us was that even if the world is um, a fantasy world and the story is entirely original, we wanted the troubles and the tribulations to be gr uh, grounded in real world issues so that, um, you know, when Raya goes off to, um, to bring her broken world back together, it is not a simple magical solution. It's not, it's going to take more than finding this last magical water dragon. Um, it really, it becomes a story about how you pull divided people together. Because um, when you talk about, you know, what's guiding us for um, the inspiration for the movie, all the filmmakers looked around and any child could tell you that we live in divided times. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it, there, there was no sense in shielding children from this because they can feel it too. And it was also about empowering that, um, empowering young people to rise up and say, you know, I can do this. It's on me to be able to pull people together. And it was also important to show even in this fantastical, amazing land where you see, you know, all kinds of magic and all kinds of um, different landscapes that kind of blow your mind, that the act of pulling people together, that's grounded in the real world. That it's not about one simple act of trust, that you just keep reaching out, you pick yourself up, you do it again and again, even if it means you're betrayed, even if it means you get hurt, even if it means you fail, that we have to keep reaching out because that's the only way we're going to get through any of this. Yeah, and it, it is very organic in the film, the pulling together of the pieces from the different lands of Kumandra and how they come together and how their different skill sets are utilized. And I, I loved in, in the call we had before this talking about creating those different lands and th really thinking about, well, these people live the farthest away from the city center, and that's going to be reflected in the spaces that in which they live and their interactions with each other and other people. All of that stuff is so beautiful when you separate this land into five areas that are very distinct visually and in terms of the people who live there. Um, you know, Osnot, we all grew up with our favorite Disney princesses. Mine was Ariel. Um, I just loved the music from The Little Mermaid and it came at the right time for me. Um, and, and we all have the ones that we grew up with, but we see society, we see the arts evolve, we see the challenges for kids evolve, and that's all reflected in film. So how do you sort of approach the modern princess and changing as the times change? It's a great question. We, we think about this a lot. Not only that, the... Just because Raya is a female protagonist, we did not take for granted that she should be a princess. What we thought a lot about that. If she should be a princess, then why? 
And we came to wanting her to be that because it loaded the responsibility even more. And that's what she was dealing with in her story. And so that's how she became a princess. But I think um, what's hard to understand is just how personal these films are. There's a group of us in the story room or in the case of this movie, some of the time in our own homes and like this, um, working together on Zoom. But that's a different story. Um, and we're talking about what's important to us. And then we're trying to hone in deeper and deeper and refine it. So now if coming together if, if is, is important to us, then what's the first step to that? In the same way, the character of Araya begins to reflect us. We're in the story room. I mean, to me, if you ask me uh, which movie inspires Raya, I'll tell you that my inspiration from Raya is less a movie and more my mother, who was a warrior and who, um, who was strong and pragmatic and just kept going, even when it was difficult. So um, I think it's a reflection of us, of who we are, of who gets to be at the table, of the conversation of the moment, and also sometimes we get super excited about it. When, when Adele and I talked a lot about the fact that we're, we get to tell a story of a female friendship. Mm -hmm. Now, you go back and look at older at movies and you're, we're looking for reference and truth is, we can't find it. And if we're looking for reference for uh, great adventure stories led by women who have a sense of humor yeah. and who might have some faults, again, so some of that was getting really excited that we get to explore that. We get to do that. And the next group of people talking about that, if, if we get it right, are going, yeah, like in Raya. And that's, that's super exciting. So the truth is, I think they just reflect us who we are today. And I think we'll feel more and more of that. Yeah, you mentioned it. So let's talk about it. Um, there were only four shots of this movie done when COVID hit, which means that you basically made an entire Disney feature film from home. 400 homes creating this from afar. Talk about that. Mm, well, you know, we're, we're going along and we, we notice what, you know, of course we know what's going on, but um, we get notice from the company that we, you know, can, can grab your laptop and go home. And we thought we're probably going home for about two weeks. And, and of course I had to figure out how we, how we overcome those two, three weeks and how we keep ourselves moving forward. Well, we're still at home. And um, we basically made the movie from all these homes. It was an amazing experience. First of all, the quick turnaround, the flexibility and adaptability of the of the crew of our technology team who worked miracles for us. We suddenly are dealing with, you know, your home bandwidth and the kids running in frame and dealing with all sorts of things that we hadn't before. But I think the hardest thing for us to adjust is our culture is one about being together in a room. We're in the story room together for hours. We're throwing things up on the board. We're, we're, we're stopping for lunch or we're having lunch and continuing to dig in creatively and um, running into each other and at, at coffee. All of that had to be replaced with very intentional choices mm -hmm. to meet. You have to do this. There's only so many hours you can do this and still have your brain that can make some cultural, you know, some creative uh, decisions that your brain doesn't turn to mush. And so um, we had to adapt and work differently. And I think the things that we learned, I mean, I love not having to commute in LA traffic, don't get me wrong. But also, <laughs> we learned a lot about um, how to delegate well. Yeah, and for sure. How to really give you the right, give the artists, because we have amazing artists, how do you give them the right um, intention information and then trust? And when we saw the film for the first time on the screen, because we were, we were improving animation on an iPad we were blown away and not by things we hadn't noticed that were bad, but by things we hadn't noticed that were just gorgeous and exciting yeah. and animation magic. So 
We're really, really, really proud of this crew. It's amazing. So the ideas of trust in the film then uh, coming to real life where you're sending people off into spaces to create. Um, Adele, I loved the idea of you talking about in the writing process how much back and forth there is throughout the process. It's not writing a movie and then come back with edits. It's in this moment you're going to go in as a writer to a sound booth and impersonate characters and do the voices and figure out what they might look like and then come back with with you know feedback tell me how that works um right regardless of zoom or otherwise that constant checking back in throughout the whole film it seems like it'd be much different than something like crazy rich asians that you wrote Oh, a hundred percent. I think sometimes you have this idea of writers as being these like lone ogres in a cave somewhere, just kind of <laughs> knocking things out on your on your laptop. Um, and the reality is it could not be further from the truth, particularly, you know, with animation, particularly with any large production. Um, and, you know, a, and as a writer, you know, I'm not built to be like in a recording studio or in front of a camera, like <laughs> truly. But, you know, getting in there, getting in there and in doing those voices, it really has that feeling of making a movie with your friends in the garage um, <laughs> when you when you're you know you, you bring an idea and you're working again with these, the, this tremendous talent it actually takes the pressure off of you that you can come to the table with you know a couple of great ideas but they don't have to be completely fully formed because you're going to have this um, these amazing artists and visual development artists take your idea and plus it so the process of working together and bouncing ideas off, you know, not every idea is gold, but generally what comes out of that process pluses it. And so it's being able to, you know, work in a team environment at all times and being incredibly communicative. It's not just about what the story is. It's about communicating that passion that you have, you know, um, and, and being able to see what lands because you can have a story in your head about, you know, well, Tuk Tuk's going to do this. We're going to have the little con baby, you know, pull off this uh, <laughs> yeah. heist with three monkeys and you're thinking in your head, this could be completely bat bananas. Um, but if it gets a rise from the room, you know, and then people are get excited about that idea and start, you know, adding on to it, then you know you have something. So really it's this constant uh, process of refining and being able to come up with something better at the end of this. Um, you know, and I would, yeah. And, I'm just uh, going to say, I'm sure you knew the fart jokes were going to work regardless before you got them into the room. <laughs> the toot, the toot bangs and the, and the con baby farts. <laughs> no, we thought um, somebody's going to make us take them out. <laughs> <laughs> I was into it. Um, Adele, let's talk about Namari because obviously there's so much focus on Raya being a complex and flawed princess, right? Having real issues that she works through throughout the film, which is so incredible. But Namari is also an incredibly fascinating enemy, so much more care perhaps put into her than the typical representation of, of straight up evil, right? And there's a lot of fan theories about Raya and, and Namari. I love how actress Kelly Marie Tran thought about the possibility of there being love at play between the two women saying, I think if you're a person watching this movie and you see representation in a way that feels really real and authentic to you, then it is real and authentic. Um, so I love that. But no matter whether Namari is just connecting in the bond of friendship or otherwise, she is very complex. And she ends up being that key to displaying the friendship you wanted to and also to you know, spurring that discussion about what happens when women are the ones solving problems. And that felt very of the moment as well. So talk about sort of Namari as, as such a massive tool for the messages of this movie. 
I love that you brought that up. And going back to the the process of collaboration and plussing, Namari started out as more your stereotypical villain. You know, somebody who's out to kind of get you. <laughs> but really, with the brain trust and how we do our screenings at Disney, the end movie you see is the result of eight screenings, us putting it up and tearing it all down. And Namari, throughout all of these screenings, began to really evolve and get deeper as a character of having Disney and our brain trust push us. How do we make her more compelling? How do we make her a villain that we haven't seen before? How do we make her more grounded? How do we make her deeper? And so if you look at the relationship of Raya and Namari, they're really, you know, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Raya is our hero because we've decided she's our hero. (laughs) She has the guidance of her, the dream of her father. She has the guidance of this magical water dragon. But Namari didn't have those things. And because of that, they see each other as the enemy. But when you get right down to it, Namari's drive is the same as Raya's. She has this fierce protectiveness of her family, of her land, and she's fighting for what she thinks is right. She's just going about it in an entirely different way. And at the end, and so at the end, you know, it's being able to have these two women look at each other, you know, reflect on how they were as children, um, connecting over this shared dream they had, you know, um, embodied in this beautiful dragon and this dream of what the world could be, and finding at a time of crisis and a time where, you know, it seems like things look hopeless to be able to reach out to one another and for the both of them to connect to back to that childhood dream and back to that shared humanity that they can see in each other. Um, you know, that was a really special moment for us. And, um, you know, I felt like really encapsulated the themes of the movie just within that relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, Osnat, there's a lot of women in super important roles in this film. And Walt Disney Animation Studios is almost 100 years old. So actually a lot of history being made in having women um, as, you know, technical leads, head of story, head of animation. Did it feel intentional or different? Or is this just... The way things are going, you look around and suddenly realize the room is full of women. It's intentional, I'd say, still. And um, we can't sort of drop our guard in that, in mm-hmm. that regard. Um, there's, because there's work to do. There's such a long gap, you know. Um, mind, mind the gap, as they say. <laughs> we need to know that it's there. Um, and so our intention was to seek out... Um, experienced, strong leadership that don't necessarily always think to put their names forward. And often what uh, what apparently is true from studies with women is that there, if, if you have a job description and a man fits whatever, 60 to 65 percent of what's required, they think they're perfectly qualified to apply. If a woman's at about 120 percent, she's still not sure she can do everything they describe. And so uh, we still need encouragement. We need to encourage each other. And so part of what we talked about, and of course we have these amazing, strong female leads in the film. So that was important to all of us, including the, the directors. And it was also important to work with each of the of our top tier of leadership who are experienced for them to be part of this idea. And everybody really embraced it. Let's look at all the people who are qualified and, and talk to them about why they haven't put their name forward if they haven't. Not yeah. just with anybody just so that we can um, we can dig into that because some of it's just fear. Some of it's just, well, I know they'll never hire me. They always hire somebody who looks like him <laughs> or whatever. We all come to the table thinking we know. And we've had amazing, like, I mean, our, our, our heads of technology, these, these like threesome of women, you wanted to like, you know, play them in slow-mo with their hair blowing back because <laughs> they solved everything, including this work from home. Yeah. And, uh, and it's the same, like our, our head of story 
as is a woman and she grew up in Thailand and there's a whole world of the inspiration of the film and we get Adele who we hired because she's a fabulous writer and yes yeah, she's a woman and she's grew up in Malaysia I think the moment you put out the intention to make sure the room is inclusive you can find it we always had a 50/50 um yeah. story boarding room which was my dream and our recruiters had to help but you know everybody helps in that awareness but i think and i think it's something that permeates our it's company it's a huge part of the artistic film you know the, the way the lands were created too you guys had cultural consultants and advisors to help create this sort of magical southeast asian land that's full of so many things that tie all of the different cultures together and then using that to create something magical and unique um we're running out of time so i, I did want to ask you adele the timing of this film whether it's the droon which is almost like a covid like virus mm -hmm. thing evil thing a Southeast Asian protagonist, as we're unfortunately seeing these awful incidents of racism against the AAPI community, um, the disruption, the need for everyone to come together to solve a problem that can't be fixed if we're all in opposition. Um, you couldn't have known any of that when this all started, but especially the Droon. To me, it had vibes of the never-ending story, The Nothing, right? This sort of amorphous evil. But one of our um, astute viewers asked a question that I wanted to ask you as well, which is, what is the Droon? How did you come up with the idea of that being the main conflict? Um, when we were coming up with the story, we started from the place of the divided world, which we all knew. We, but nobody had heard of the word COVID. Um, and I remember pitching the Droon as these monsters who could turn people to stone, but that there was a way for the world to be restored because that felt important. We didn't want to leave uh, the world as broken, you know. And by the way, I was so inspired by, you know, hearing you talk about breaking down systems that don't work and, you know, disrupting it and for the opportunity to build back something even better, something more transcendent. And so it came from that idea that um, the biggest obstacles facing us in the world today is not some outside outside disruption, not some outside um, force. It is really about, you know, whether we are united and whether we are together in facing that threat. And so the Droon um, became the, this force that didn't, you know, wasn't sentient. They don't care about who you are, what you look like, what your political affiliation is. They just want to take over and to divide. And when we talked about the Droon, we talked about it in terms of being a virus. And so, you know, when um, when COVID hit, um, you know, when we see, we saw the fallout of all of that, we had moments in our screenings where, you know, it was a little cringeworthy. Like, yeah. are we too close to home? And seeing how, you know, our, um, the world dealt with this outside threat and um, seeing um, places where, you know, we could work together as a people to overcome it or places where we were very divided and, you know, um, um, looking at each other um, as the enemy in how we dealt with it, which wasn't helping anybody. And so it's, we seemed sort of prescient and, um, you know, in being able to uh, predict those moves. But really, it wasn't about that. It, yeah. All these issues came from the root of having a divided world. And it was the natural, um, you know, consequences of, um, you know, what happens when you are not together. And so I think, you know, our, our hope and our dream that of what people take away from this movie is that of what, even though we've been through a lot, even though, you know, we've had, we've seen things broken down and we've had people taken away from us, that if we can find a way to overcome this tribalism and trust that what all of us really want at the end of the day is a better, more beautiful world, mm -hmm. that this is it, that this can be a promise of a wonderful world, um, you know, better than what we had before, if we can just get it together. 
Yeah, it's incredibly moving to watch in the moment. I mean, I was going to cry anyway, but I was happy about the drone and the stone and the possible reversal after all the parents we've lost in Disney films. I was like, okay, I like the idea that they're giving us a shot at getting him back because I've had enough of that in my childhood <laughs> to sort of in meaningful and moving ways. But this time I was like, all right, we got a shot at getting him back. It's just it's such a gorgeous movie. It is so beautiful. And you guys, I, I'm, so, I'm so happy for you. It's, it's, it's already super successful. And the more people see it, the more we're going to hear about it. So thank you so much for coming to talk about it. I didn't even ask you any sports questions. How'd we do? We do all right? We're good. <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, ladies. Uh, really appreciate you coming to talk. And everybody, please see the movie. Oh, my gosh. I was just crying at home. And again, I'm, 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 am I too old to buy tuk-tuk stuffed animals? I feel like maybe, maybe you're never too old. You're never too old. Oh, my God. I love tuk-tuk. Um, you're never too old. Great. Okay. Well, my husband knows what to get me. Easy, easy gift, babe. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is where I can rant about something I'm mad about or, or rave or everything in between. Sometimes I'll tell you something to read or listen to. And and this week, I want you to read the words of my friend Kenny Main, who is signing off from ESPN after many decades of redefining what this can look like, what it means to be a quote-unquote sports reporter or anchor. And he wrote a piece for the LA Times about his departure. It's funny, it's charming, it's heartfelt, all, all things Kenny. Um, you could Google the headline to find it. Kenny Maine, I'm leaving ESPN. You know that, but here's the story in my own words. And again, it's in the LA Times. Here's what I wrote when I found out that Kenny wouldn't be with the company after this month. The legend, the goat, the king. In every class I speak to, when I get asked who I want to be when I decided I wanted to get into sports media, the answer was always Kenny Maine. In fact, my very first hosting reel featured a Spain event in the style of his satiric genius main event. Kenny, you proved sports could meet humor, that satire and intelligence could live freely with analysis, that it was cool and endearing and celebrated and valued to not take yourself too seriously. No screaming debates, no loss of perspective, just genuinely funny and heartfelt responses to sport. I could go on and on about the work that inspired me from the main events to the incredible wider world of sports paleo horse race to the riotously funny dance center segments on Dancing with the Stars and the upfront angel. You guys will have to Google that one, but it would take too long. An incredible person, a distinctive mind, a gem. The work you're doing with runfreely.org is so powerful, and the stances you take on things that matter are always informed by empathy, kindness, and what's right. I can't imagine what you'll do untethered like the wild genius beast you are. You're the best, one of a kind. Tons of love to Kenny on whatever he does next. Thanks for the laughs and the inspiration. Can't wait to see what's coming. You guys can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please, and give me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said.